Okay, it's um, May 4th, 2017. Happy Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. <laughs> um, I am um, I am in Pine Hill um, with, uh, with Chelsea and uh, Rusty May. Um, and I'm here to do an oral history with the uh, New York Trans Oral History Collective, or or archive, sorry, which seeks to document the lives of uh, trans folks who um, lived in New York. All right, thank you. So we're going to do the interview uh, together, just so you know. All right. Um, so um, can you tell me a little bit about where you were born and what that place was like? I was uh, born in Bangor, Maine. We were supposedly there for one year. I don't remember a bloody thing about it. I grew up in a town called Broadway, New Jersey, which is in Franklin Township in Warren County. If you are driving from Washington to Phillipsburg on Route 57 and blink, you will miss the whole bloody town, and that would be jolly good luck for you. <laughs> that having been said, uh, let's start at the very beginning. I'd like to start with future history and present history, and then we can get into my past history. Okay. Uh, my name in full is Chelsea Goodwin. I host a radio show on WIOX 91.3 FM in Roxbury, New York, called In Goth We Trust. This very night, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be interviewing one of my favorite bands, a Halo Called Fred. Tomorrow night, I will be on stage at the Goblin Market as part of the Steampunk World's Fair in Piscataway, uh, New Jersey at the Embassy Suites and um, Hotel in Piscataway and the Radisson Hotel in Piscataway. Uh, the Steampunk World's Fair is the largest steampunk event on the West Coast. It is part of an organization which I, with which I'm proud to perform from time to time called Jeff Mack Events. Uh, Jeff Mack used to bring us an event called Wicked Fair. He now brings us Glimmer Dark, Dark Side of the Con. The Steampunk World's Fair, Steampunk in the Catskills, Halloween in the Catskills, the Geeky Kink Event, the Geeky Kink Event New England Edition, and a host of other wonderful fan events uh, for people who are into fantasy, science fiction, weird branches of paganism, kink, polyamory, all sorts of wonderfulness. And I occasionally have the privilege of performing at Jeff Mack events as a sort of mistress of ceremonies, sort of in tune with the, all of the bands that I introduce have been or on the radio show at least once, so I'm sort of a cross between being a steampunk version of Elvira and a goth version of the old-time rock and roll shows where you'd have a slate of bands and somebody like Alan Freed or Wolfman and Jack or Cousin Brucey or one of the popular DJs of the day introducing and kibitzing with a slate of bands and it's a wonderful life, and that's what I'm doing now. I also have 
written a series of novels uh, about Lady Sylvia Dorchester, who has monogrammed everything. Think about it. And her partner, Dr. Drusilla Stiles, and their cat, Salem, in a mythical community known as Pine Hell, where they encounter mad scientists with airships, vampires, werewolves. The usual thing one encounters in a small town in the Catskills. How long have you lived here in Pine Hill? Since 2008. And what, what brought you to Pine Hill specifically? A 1985 uh, Jeep Wagoneer. <laughs> um, was there a, uh, a reason you, you chose this particular town? Uh, yes, that's uh, where the uh, dot landed when Rusty was throwing dots at a map of the Catskills. And Rusty, what do you uh, what do you do? What is your what's your life now? Well, I retired as a university professor in two thousand and eleven when I was seventy, and so I've dedicated my life to um, being retired now and. My main thing that I do, it's very important that I act as Chelsea's staff so that, you know, whatever Chelsea's trying to do, I try to be helpful and be there, do uh, the little things that have to be done sometimes. And uh, also, I'm involved in the museum. I'm on the museum board for the town where we live, town of Shandaken. And um, I go to the radio show all the time. I, I'm not... I don't have You're a, a part of the show. You're our septuagenarian ninja turtle. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I, I'm on uh, every show. I usually have little spots that usually have some kind of a angle to them, maybe local history, maybe world history, and um, other stuff. And uh, aside from that, I just kind of like drive the car back and forth sometimes. So were you, a, were you a history professor? No, I was a professor. Well, my PhD is in international economic relations. But um, I taught, m uh, most of the time, I taught in a school of business, and I would teach uh, things like introduction to international business, you know, graduate course in international business, or, you know, business in Latin America, business in Europe, um, international marketing, stuff like that, those courses. So I was like, a, I did that for about 33 years at Hofstra University, and before that I was at a bunch of other schools, too. Um, I'm How about yourself? Where are you from and what do you do? Um, I am mainly a, uh, an editor and a video producer. I grew up in Florida and, um, yeah, on the Gulf Coast, um, two hours south of Tampa. And, um, is that near St. Augustine? No, it is, um, it's much further south. Although St. Augustine is a gorgeous place to visit, I have to say. It has, we have better beaches, though. Ah. <laughs> Do you make it to the Magic Kingdom? Um, no, I try to avoid the Magic Kingdom like the plague. Really? Why? Um, it's the only thing in Florida that appeals to me these days. Um, the Magic Kingdom isn't as magical as one might, <laughs> one might uh, expect. <laughs> um, but I do, I do love the beaches. It's, it's gorgeous there. And I like the wildlife, too, the gators. Um, so can you uh, tell me a little bit about how you got involved in uh, 
paganism, I guess, and in golf, uh, golf. Why did I just say golf? Goth, goth communities. Well, these are all very different questions, of course. My involvement with paganism or knowing anything about it would be in the years 1979 and 80, I was a sophomore, excuse me, a uh, freshman, sophomore, sophomore at Montclair State University. And I was taking a lot of women's studies courses, and uh, one of them was taught by Adele McCollum, who I understand is somewhat famous in some feminist circles of one kind or another. But uh, she introduced us my wife at the time and myself to a book by Margot Adler called Drawing Down the Moon and started talking about Wicca and I became fascinated with it as did my wife at the time and uh, we eventually met Margot Adler and a lot of other people started studying Wicca at a uh, witchcraft in a cult store called Magical Child where was uh, that located? It, uh, I don't think it any longer exists. It was on 19th Street. It was run by a gentleman named Herman Slater, who was one of the authors that was the mythical Simon that wrote the commercial black paperback version of the Necronomicon from the 1970s that you can get. But there were OTO meetings, an OTO temple meeting there, uh, Leo Martello... Israel Regarde, Miriam Weinstein, I mentioned Margot Adler. Uh, by hanging out there, we met most of the, uh, oh, how could I forget Isaac Bonwitz? We most met most of the leading uh, Wiccan and occult writers of that part of the 70s and 80s. Uh, you might remember there was, an, well, you actually are far too young to remember, but in the late 1970s and early 80s, there was an explosion of interest in Wicca and witchcraft. And there was a woman named Starhawk who wrote a book called The Spiral Dance that was a very hippie, very save the environment, very uh, kind of loosey-goosey peace and love approach to Wicca and the occult that appealed to me. Um, what about it appealed to you? Well, for one thing, the same thing that I think appeals to uh, people about the Da Vinci Code or any of that is I'm very attracted to honoring the divine feminine as well as the Divine Masculine. I believe that the overemphasis on the all-important Almighty Father to the extension, to the exclusion of the Mother runs contrary to biology, nature, and common sense. And, of course, magic and witchcraft in the occult always have their appeal. I could trace that and my interest in goth culture as well. Simply to being a kid, I 
loved the Adams Family from the very first time I saw it at the age of four. A couple of years ago, I had the uh, privilege. Of Who was your favorite character in the Adams Family, if I might ask? You know that goes from episode to episode. I love Cousin It. I've come to identify increasingly with Grandmama the older I get. Uh, what I love the most about the Adams family was that delightful romance uh, between Gomez and Morticia. And the older you get, and the more you understand all the nuances, they were a perfectly happy, perfectly healthy, goth, kink, married couple who had loving children and loving relatives like Uncle Fester and Grandmama and a perfectly healthy family life. And the very fact that their family was centered on a husband and wife who were still passionately in love with one another as much as the goth clothing in the house and the 31 Packard and everything set them apart from their neighbors and that drove the humor of the show. The romance at the heart of it. I've, I've, never, um, I've never heard that reading of The Addams Family, but it makes perfect sense to me, actually. Well, it's the same reading John Aston gave me of it, so it must be all right. So, can you tell me, how did you two meet, and when did you meet? Uh, we were uh, both at different times, um, in her case, dating, in my case, uh, living with a, another trans woman who really holds no relevance to the story, except that she happened to be the means uh, by which we encountered each other. That was probably the purpose she was meant to serve in our lives. It was love at first sight. What, what year was that? Um, we'll argue. I say it was late 1990, early 1991, thereabouts. No, I, I think it was more like 92. That compromise on late 91. Okay, that's fine. No, it was definitely, I was going to say, yes, it was love at first sight. I saw Chelsea, I was in the, the room with this ex-girlfriend of Chelsea that I was dating, and, and Chelsea came walking in, and I had never seen her before, and I just, like, I stood up, and I walked, like, four paces across the room, and I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I walking toward her, you know? But um, I was afraid of Chelsea at first, so Chelsea can come across really strong, and, uh, but then, you know, Find out how sweet she is. And had you um, had you dated another trans woman before? Oh, did I? Did I? Did I? Did I? I don't. You know, it's like. Yeah, of course you coming, did. That when, goes back to Brazil. When you're when you're coming out as a you know as a trans person, um, a lot of you know a lot of what you do you go to you go to clubs and things like that and you pick people up you know and it's like you try out sexuality. Was that, uh, and so I did all that stuff, you know. So I had been with men and women. And trans hookers in Rio and Sao Paulo. Well, they were women, too. But uh, Chelsea's like, got to tell my entire sordid past. Well, of uh, course. <laughs> Words and all, my love. Words and all. Words and all, yeah. Well, anyway, um, 
Well, you want your story to be true. You want it to be yeah. accurate. You want yeah. to have all of the history yeah. besides. So there's a, there's a, a phase like it, when, in my coming out process uh, where I was just going to these like clubs and things, and they had, you know, they used to have like, um, I don't know whether they were sort of S&M clubs, but uh, they welcomed trans people at those clubs. Was this in New York? In New York, yeah. In what, approximately what years were that? Uh, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And um, so there are a lot of men that, you know, they're, that are cruising there for trans women because that's a turn on for a lot of men. So I, I dabbled in that slightly, but it didn't really, it wasn't the greatest thing ever, you know. But it's okay. I mean, it, it gives you confidence if you think, if you're wondering what you look like as a woman, it's nice if you can get a man and like chase you down the street and, or whatever, take you out and buy you something or something. Do, do you relate to that at all, Chelsea? Did you have a similar sort of process? I've been all the way around the block and stopped at several of these shops along the way. Now, um, I guess I'm, I'm going, this is going to be a very nonlinear conversation. I hope you will bear with me. But um, these days, a lot of uh, trans folks, especially trans youth, connect with other trans people through the internet, through apps, um, and form relationships that way. Not just trans youth and trans folks in general, but you know, a lot of the information that f people have on gender and sexuality is coming through a computer. And I'm just wondering, when you, when you were starting to explore and and you know how did you how did you find um, people like other trans folks how did you you know right. go about exploring that right well there was always an advertisement in the uh, back pages of the village voice not the um, uh, hooker advertisements the very very back page that gave a phone number for something called metamorphosis and since I had come to New York with the intent of pursuing um, what's called transition I um, called the number got referred to a doctor Leo Wollman uh, looking for someone who would prescribe hormones and help me do the medical part of the uh, transition uh, Dr. Wollman was the partner of Dr. Harry Benjamin, who was Christine Jorgensen's uh, doctor, to put this all in an historical perspective, if you will. Uh, he had treated thousands of transsexuals, including some of the famous ones I mentioned, Christine Jorgensen, Renee Richards, and so forth. And I began treatment with him, and the first real contacts I had uh, speaking with and, you know, having coffee with and having conversations with were other um, trans women who were uh, seeking medical uh, treatment for Dr. Wollman. Uh, he'd lay out coffee and cake and stuff like the nice old school Jewish gentleman he was. And while waiting for a turn to go see the doctor, we'd have coffee and cake and that and get to know one and each one another a bit and um, 
prior to that, the first uh, other transsexual I ever met in my life uh, was someone by the first name of Robin, who was a uh, shop girl uh, putting stock on the shelves and such at uh, Magical Child, the uh, witchcraft shop I uh, mentioned. Uh, others may disagree with this, but goth culture, paganism, and... Uh, the trans community all fit together like peanut butter and jelly. They really do. Uh, so anyway, I predate, we, Rusty and I both predate the internet and that. And then um, there were the clubs. Um, there was a club called Edelweiss and one other one called Sally's. Both were places that um, Tranny chasers, uh, men who were sexually interested in uh, transgendered people, would go to uh, pick up dates a, on a more or less commercial basis. Uh, but Sally's in particular also had a stage and uh, shows that were emceed by people like Dorian Corey, who was Victoria Cruz. Um, a uh, trans you... woman who called herself um, Cherry Grove. And all of these are sort of famous names in trans and drag uh, history. There was a film by Jenny Livingstone called Paris is Burning. I wasn't in that film, but I performed in the same spot and knew all the people that were. I just happened to not have been there when... There were other things going on in my life that I wasn't at the place at that particular point, although I spent much more time there before and after the fact of that film. And uh, that's fine. I mean, even now with the Jeff Mock shows and the steampunk festivals and stuff, as far as performing and as far as my comic delivery or how I go about introducing acts and everything I know about emceeing a show I owe to two or three people, one of whom obviously as you can tell from my airsats British accent is Quentin Crisp, but the others are Dorian Corey, I mentioned Cherry Grove, Jesse Torres, the uh, great um, trans and as it was called earlier uh, drag performers of the uh, generation of the Stonewall era. I was a generation later, but I, they were the people I learned from, not only about, you know, living in this role, but equally importantly about performing. And about how old were you when you came to New York and you, you started performing? Twenties. Twenties. And... Um, can you tell me what was one of the most uh, memorable or, you know, fun, fun performances that you saw during that time? You know, that's interesting. There were some good ones. Um, I'm trying to remember even the name. There was this one uh, performer. I never saw anything like it that did, uh, dressed up as Shirley Temple and sang the uh, Good Ship Lollipop, which is something that any drag queen might do, but this was a 
very large Italian-American person who, out of Dragon in regular uh, clothes, looked like an extra from Goodfellas or one of those uh, mafia movies. And, you know, somebody whose uh, name would have been... Uh, Joey the Rat or Jimmy the Squid or something, so it was so just, it was so funny and so well done. It was purely a visual gag. You'd have to see it, but. And, and uh, Rusty, for you, um, when was the first, when, when did you meet, when did you first meet other uh, trans women or gender nonconforming folks? Um, Would that be Sao Paulo? <laughs> yeah, probably. I'm noticing a theme here. Well, I used to go, I had a, a very strong interest in Brazil academically, and uh, I used to be in Brazil. And Brazil, Sao Paulo happens to be an epicenter of uh, travesties, as they're mm -hmm. called, you know. and Because uh, of um, Cardoso? Was he in Brazil? who was the Marxist who became the libertarian? I don't know. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not picking We're up. going back to the 1970s when Brazil was still some kind of cockamamie military dictatorship. Yeah, right. for a time there. But Got it. Anyway, so I, I uh, first, the first time I went out on the street was in Brazil. And uh, I, you know, I, I met these uh, you know, these girls talking on the side, and I, did, I was like talking to them. And they're trying to pick me up because I'm wearing a man suit and everything like that. And I said, I said, no, I want to go out in the street. And they're like, oh, okay, well, come on, let's go. You know, so I went out and bought a, you know, bought a war, uh, what I needed for a, an evening to be on the street, you know, and I, I went out on the street and it really, it was cool because men were attracted to me and that made me feel good. And, uh, you know, so that was, uh, an interesting experience. That was a, a, a big step in me when I was, for me when I was coming out actually. So anyway, but then, it, you know, back in the States, I used to, I started to go to the, to the group meetings that they had in Manhattan and, uh, you know, went to clubs also, Sally's, Edelweiss. And, and were you living in New York during this time? Well, uh, I lived in New York I mean, uh, the f I think probably the whole time I was pretty much living in New York. Um, but, um, yeah, so, but I lived in Brooklyn mostly. I lived in Manhattan just for like three years in, when I was teaching at NYU. I lived on Bleecker. But, um... Long Island comes into there someplace, doesn't it? Well, what, New York? Yeah. Yeah, sh certainly. But I used to, like... I, I had uh, no social life on Long Island, you know, as a trans person ever. Is that where you grew up, or? No, it's where I worked. At, I taught at Hofstra University. Okay. Oddly enough, a lot of our social life is on Long Island now. Things change. Hmm. Yeah, so, it's a big, it's a very stressful thing. Like, in my case, I was coming out when I was like 50, and I had three children, like two different wives, and, um, I love my children, and uh, I was divorced, but but still from both of the wives. But uh, you know, that was those are a lot of concerns that you have when you're when you're coming out as a trans person, which many people do, uh, and they have a family, 
but it, you know it's it's a whole different thing and uh, usually I think the kids are pretty accepting of it ex-spouses are probably less but you know not that's not so bad really um, so that's that's really you know something when you know to come out at an older age also it's, but at the same time you also have more wherewithal financially because you know you have had jobs and things like that so you can survive more easily so um can I ask you a little bit about, you know, you fell in love in ni late 1991. <laughs> um, and uh, when did you start to, to live together? Oh, almost immediately. I uh, started out as a one-night stand and just never bloody left. <laughs> so in true U-Haul fashion. Yes. <laughs> That's good. Um, may, I, may I ask you when... You know, this is the early 90s. Um, in, you're living in Brooklyn? Actually, we were living on Long Island, a wretched little uh, town called uh, Balmore. One night I was walking home from the Long Island Railroad and a uh, group of teenagers threw rocks at me. It was a bit hard, actually. I'm sorry. It's... Wow. Um... Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What that town was like, um, in addition to that, that awful experience. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what that town was like in, in the early nineties? Well, the way I can, I'll, first of all, I won't even say the early nineties to illustrate my point better. I um, a couple years ago, no more than three, I participate. Do things with the Macabre Fair uh, family. They put on the Macabre Fair Film Festival and other horror and goth events throughout the year. Uh, the Macabre Fair Film Festival has been called Sundance with Fangs. It's like the independent horror film festival of record for the U.S., perhaps for the English speaking world. There might be something in the U.K. that's equally prestigious that I'm unaware of, but I think. Pretty much that's it for the U.S. And I taught a, uh, not taught, I um, facilitated a uh, panel with Cynthia Bryan-Kate, who's the other co-host along with uh, Rusty of my our, our radio show in Goth We Trust. And it was a uh, panel on uh, the vampire community, uh, people who choose to um, identify as vampires in one way or another, mostly people like myself who are performers who specialize in playing uh, vampire roles as a performer. Um, I'm in the tradition of, uh, well, you mentioned Al Lewis, who was actually a friend of ours uh, from the Munsters. Um, I'm in the uh, tradition of the horror host, people like Zachary or Elvira or Vampira that show old horror films and do shtick in between or introduce goth bands and do shtick in between. You get the idea. And um, that's relevant because at this vampire panel, there was this uh, young woman about your age, maybe a bit younger, in her 20s. So this would be the same town like 20 years later from when we were living there. 
And she happened to be of Indian subcontinent ancestry. Uh, I don't want to say she was Indian and find out she was Pakistani or something. I'm not trying to offend. I'm just... The point is, very attractive young woman. Looked like a Bollywood movie star. And she... Uh, was talking about how all through her junior high and high high school career, uh, the other kids bullied her and told her how ugly she was. And I'm talking about literally someone that looks like a Bollywood film star. So if they treated her the way they treated her and they're seeing me uh, coming home from work doing a uh, performance at Sally's in some place and I'm dressed like a cross between Marie Antoinette and a Grim Reaper, they... Well, you see what So I you're mean. saying it's, they're very uh, provincial, narrow-minded. What, you know, what communities live in Belmore? I'm not familiar with the town. I don't want to uh, stereotype. Oh. I'd say that we're talking pretty much about blue-collar Irish and Italian-American okay. with all that goes with that. Right, right. Well, I th Belmore is one of a string of, like, Merrick, North Merrick, Belmore, um, on the South Shore line of the uh, Long Island Railroad. And I would say it's it's a middle-class town, but it... it um, uh, but it, it's it's a less affluent middle class town than other Long Island communities are. Like Merrick, for example, is probably more well to do than than uh, Belmore. Just take a, a one right there. But um, Long Island is my impression. You know, as a trans person coming out of Long Island, it's very conservative. You know, I mean, it's not that Long Islanders aren't with it. You know, there's a lot of trans people out there, etc. But like socially uh, conservative. Yeah, socially conservative. Mm. On the other hand, there are things, as I say, the uh, Macabre Fair Film Festival takes place on Long Island in um, Ronkonkoma at the Clarion Hotel every January. And uh, we belonged to the Copper Cauldron Coven, which was the uh, coven of... Uh, Lady uh, Venus, who was sort of a popular uh, public figure, uh, which on Long Island there was a, and still is a Beltane uh, festival every year that draws, you know, tourists and the newspaper comes, sort of like they do in Salem, where it's quite supportive in its own way. It's uh, let's have fun taking pictures of the witches in the funny costumes, and you get the idea, and it's fairly benign and you know so it um we also for example the uh, aviate the history of aviate what's the aviation museum cradle Muse of aviation the cradle of aviation museum has uh science fiction and uh, fantasy events uh, one's called eternal con for example and um Last one I went to a couple of years ago, they had all of the ape suits from the 1970s Planet of the Apes movies. Oh, that's cool. And they have one of the actual lunar landers because they were built there on, on Long Island. And so they have the exhibit with a lunar lander on this kind of moonscape, and then they put one of the 
apes from Planet of the Apes <laughs> by the ladder of the Lunar Lander. And, you know, it's there are fun events and fun things. If you're in fandom or in subcultures, you know, you can find fun subcultures in, in the, uh, I almost want to say, sort of hip kind of people that are more fun, but... Mm -hmm. So you you lived in so Belmore at least you know you experienced some of that social conservatism and some of that prejudice in the early nineties and then did you stay there or did you then move to well the then we moved to Brooklyn and uh, bought the house that uh, became known as Tramsey House two fourteen Sixteenth Street that's the house we bought so was that in uh, Park Slope or Gwinnett it's in what was it was called or it is called now the South Slope. South Slope. Yeah, because it's it's beyond it's on 16th Street. It's beyond 9th Street, which used to be the sort of the actually 8th Street used to be the breaking line between Park Slope and you know. When we moved there, it was a bit of a dodgy neighborhood. There was a very amusing gunfight in front of the house once. There were various. Um, actual or would-be gangs running about the place and there was a uh, hip-hop studio around the block i actually recorded tracks for some of the musicians down there I, I was so close that you know i'd get a phone call uh can you come put a keyboard solo on yeah sure 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 just tell me what key it's in you know and you know i'd run down and do whatever they said they wanted or whatever rapper it was and go back about my business. And... and so what made you leave uh, the suburban enclave to go to this neighborhood? Why did you pick a house in this uh, neighborhood? It was near her kids. Well, my kids um, uh, were, all, were all living in, in uh, Park Slope, basically, with their mother and her boyfriend. And... Um, so I wanted to be uh, closer to there, but see, I was always oriented toward Park Slope anyway, because we had lived there originally before we moved to Long Island. And um, so, you know, I just bought this little old house for not much money, I mean, for Park Slope, it was like $150,000, which is, uh, you know, for a nice little row house, it's three-story. Um, so had some old detail in it. It was all a trashed up house, but it still had a lot of old detail and stuff. It was cool. So we just went there uh, to live. There were actually three of us. Julia Murray also was another one. And then people started to come out of the woodwork. They'd be like, hey, you have you have a house? And, you know, you have room? Can I, you know, you, can, you, can I stay there? You know, so it just like, everybody was uh, wanting to come and live with us because they needed a place to live. It's hard in um you know in new york city to get a place to live in a lot especially for trans people a lot of them have trouble finding housing and we were all trans so there was none of that thing where you know they would be objectified or harassed or anything like that so we ended up having a lot of trans people not a lot but i mean we would have like eight to twelve or something like that for the next five years or so and now this started in 19 we bought the house in uh, summer of 1994 summer of and so we, we always had trans people there, uh, but, you know, we didn't have any mission about it. We were just like, oh, where we're, this is where we live. We share a house. But then when people started to come, then it got kind of like, 
we had to, we never did get very formal about the whole thing, but, you know, we, we sort of had it, took it as a mission to help younger people, especially to find someplace to live if they didn't have any support. A lot of young people, there, there are stories where people just load their kid in the car in Texas, drive up to New York City, dump them out in the street and say, have a good, have a good life. And they go back to Texas and that's it. And they're supposed to survive as a trans person in New York City. So, you know, it's a, there's a lot of people that need help in terms of the housing. Now, um, just to get more of the context, can you tell me, um, if you recall or know, what resources in terms of healthcare or housing were, were there for trans, uh, trans folks? Um, okay, um, quite simply, at that time, you had some things I understand where they tried to accommodate people under the age of 18 as soon as they aged out of the juvenile system uh, they were completely on their own and we got a lot of people who had aged out of the juvenile system and still were aged out of foster care you mean? yes exactly that's what I meant foster yes, care uh, that was a large part of it. There was very little. I mean, what eventually happened and became overwhelming, unbearable, and it's eventually what uh, destroyed the whole experiment was the homeless shelters, even once they started to exist, were very gender segregated and no special accommodation made for trans identity. As a matter of fact, when we were talking about Sonda and how I maintain... Can you explain, can you s tell us what the what Sonda stands for? It was the uh, state gay rights law. Okay. I forget what the... the Sexual that's okay. Orientation Non-Discrimination Act. There you go. Oh, great. Thank you. Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act. Thank you. Even when they passed that in 2012, not only was it not trans-inclusive, uh, those who were involved in making the deal with the Empire State Pride agenda to not even try for trans inclusion in Sonda and to thwart the efforts of those of us who did in return for the citywide law that they did get passed. Even that law originally exempted the homeless shelters, which meant that every time a social worker got a transgender person and didn't know where to place them, they'd call us or just, without even notifying us, send them to our door and I'd be working in my office. Their doorbell would ring. I'd come downstairs. There'd be some homeless trans person there standing there and I'd be like, oh yes, may I help you? And so-and-so from such-and-such institution, shelter, organization, or whatever sent me, and there they are with their satchel or whatever, and I'm like, all right, come in and we'll see what we can do to get you sorted out. Could you go watch some TV or something while I, until my work day's over? This is an office and I'm trying to work here, and you know. What were you, what were you working on at that time while you were doing this collective house? I was uh, running a telemarketing office, mostly business to business, so I probably wasn't interrupting your supper, but. And can I ask, how did these 
uh, homeless shelters and the social workers hear about your 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 house because it was this is just it it doesn't I mean correct me if I'm wrong but it doesn't sound like you bought the house with the intention that it would serve this purpose what necessarily we really had in mind was more of what we have now there are four uh, trans people living in this house now uh, you don't see the other two because they're at work doing their jobs um, they pay rent they're friends that we choose to live with and we all get along we're not just a random collection of people that were sent here because the social workers didn't know what else to do with them and once they were sent to us we were too soft to kick them to the curb the thing is that it was by word of mouth it spread pretty quickly that there were this uh, these trans people from in Brooklyn that had their own house and uh, that some people were staying there and uh, so People just started to, you know, talk to us when we were in a club or something like that, or they would uh, come over to the house and say something, you know. So there, pretty, there was like a, a notoriety, let's say. Um, and uh, later on, too, uh, Chelsea was at a um, a Clags meeting, wasn't it? And and Sylvia Rivera was there. Clags was. Uh, I forget what the initials stand for, but it was the gay studies thing at... At CUNY. At CUNY, right. And Sylvia Rivera was there, and... Was this the first time you met Sylvia Rivera? For purposes of this conversation, let's say it was the first time I had seen her and spoken with her with any real, you know, degree of connection and... Uh, Oh, we invited. I invited her to check out uh, Transy House. Eventually, she ended up living there, and I honestly think that the whole part about Sylvia Rivera living at um, Transy House has been so well documented. I don't want to take anything away from Sylvia, but uh, the, David France just did this film about Marcia and Sylvia and the rest of it. One of the things that actually started to get under my skin a bit is during the 1980s before Transy House before I met Rusty um, speaking for myself I was in Queer Nation I was in ACT UP I was in an organization called the Dyke Action Machine I was in the Pink Panthers I was at some protest or some demonstration just about every night of the week certainly at least one or two every weekend and there was a trans woman named Kathy Otter. She was one of the people from ACT UP that uh, did the uh, demonstration at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And they dropped the communion wafers on the floor. And oh my God, the, I'm not Roman Catholic. And the whole thing seems silly to me. But apparently that was... What, what year was that? Oh, I don't know. 89, 90, somewhere in there. Who can tell? <sighs> You can find old editions of the uh, New York Native or something, one of the papers. It's all in there. You can find that stuff. But my point is um, there was a lot of activism, and there were quite a few of us trans people who were involved in all that. And I think maybe it's time to 
perhaps write a little bit less about the Stonewall era. Say we've pretty much got that covered and start uh, looking at the things that happened in the 1980s and trans participation in ACT UP and in Queer Nation and in... Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, was Did ACT UP have mu much trans participation in your view? Well, I was always there. No, like I mentioned Kathy Otter. She was very very prominent, very involved. Um, there were others. I'm not really ready to come up with a bunch of names at this time, but they'll come back to me. This was Kathy Otter is certainly one that's uh, worthy of uh, mention, worthy of name. Uh, there were a couple of um, drag performers, uh, drag queens who don't identify as trans in the sense that we are, but were Important. This was when Lady Bunny started doing wig stock. I participated in the first few wig stocks. And that whole era of drag performance. I knew RuPaul when she was still called Star Booty and performing at wig stock, for example. Um, and there was a wig stock when, uh, I forget the year, when the Wigstock was attacked by a group of skinheads and there was a riot and the cops started arresting the drag queens and letting the skinheads go and it got ridiculous. There were things all the time. I mean, there were, Kathy Otter was one of the main, uh, most visible uh, people in the Queers Take Back the March, Queers Take Back the Night March. I can't remember the exact year. You can look it up. It was like 88, 89 in there. You've, you're nodding. You've heard of this, mm -hmm. of course. Uh, basically, that was how Queer Nation came about, was along with the AIDS epidemic and all the ACT UP demonstrations, there was a ridiculous increase in anti-queer violence across the board. Uh, gay couples, lesbian couples, trans people, we were all getting beat up all the time. And that march, which ended up being huge, I think Queer's Take Back the Night was to the 80s what Stonewall was to the 60s. It was that critical mass moment when there were thousands of people, thousands of queer people in the street fed up to here, we're not going to take it anymore, ready to go. And Queer Nation came out of that. That was the main organization that did come out of that, I think. Uh, the Dyke Action Machine, which was a lesbian split-off of Queer Nation. What were uh, some of the goals of Queer Nation in the 80s? Well, some of the goals were kind of modest, like we don't want to get beat up when we're out in the street. It sounds like a very modest goal, but it was too much to ask for in the 80s at times. Um, certainly equality in housing in jobs, not being discriminated against, the usual, the, pretty much the same things that they were riding for in 1969. Progress had been made, not enough progress. The uh, backlash caused by the AIDS crisis brought about a tremendous increase in anti-gay violence, as did the crack epidemic. And May I ask um, if you can recall what was your first foray into activism? Because it sounds like you were involved with a lot of different groups and a lot of actions and things, and I'm just wondering when it all began for you. You know, I really can't remember what 
the first demonstration I was in was, I remember the uh, first uh, Pride Parade I was in was in about 1979, 80, somewhere in there, when I was at a uh, pagan class at Magical Child on Pride Day, and then after the class it was like, well, let's walk out the street half a block and join the parade with a bunch of witches, which we did. And um, Miriam Weinstein and Margot Adler, who I mentioned before, were both marching. So we marched with the witches, and I uh, marched every year with the uh, pagan or the witches contingent uh, for many years. And uh, as far as actual uh, demonstrations, it's hard to remember. I was, for a while, it was like every week we'd be marching somewhere. We're here, we're queer whatever the cause of the day was, you know. I, I remember a couple of them were about queer bashings. I remember being in the uh, first uh, Pride March in the Bronx. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? Oh, sure. It was a bunch of homies throwing rocks at us. Hard to forget that. There's like us marching down the street. A wall of cops between us and uh, us and these uh, people that were throwing rocks and bottles and garbage at us and telling us we weren't welcome in the Bronx. And do you know where in the Bronx? Do you recall where in the Bronx this uh, Pride March took place? If you don't, it's okay. I remember the Grand Concourse was what we marched down something called the Grand Concourse. I'd never been in the Bronx before or since. Maybe there, in that sense we were outside agitators, I suppose. But I remember that one just because it was like so horrible, you know. I remember a lot of them were uh, funerals for people who were uh, political funerals for people who had been murdered for being queer. Uh, then we had black armbands with our Queer Nation t-shirts and somebody banging a drum like they do in the Westerns, you know, the funeral march thing. And as I say, there was one every week. I remember uh, one where I was... Uh, uh, where my girlfriend at the time and I were asked to leave a bar because we uh, kissed in the place. So that Saturday we brought about a hundred queer couples in. We're here, we're queer, we're taking over this bar, you know. Do you remember which bar it was? No, it was 30, so 40 years ago. Come on. So you did, you participated in a lot of direct action and a lot of grassroots. Yeah. Grassroots work. And then you know, in sort of the early mid nineties, you, you know, uh, were involved with this collective, with this home that ended up being basically like a shelter for homeless. Essentially, it's what it was. We were running an unofficial informal shelter. So it was basically like a lot of, it was basically social work in a, in a lot of ways. It was social work, only I didn't have an MSW and I wasn't getting paid. I was just doing social work all day and all night. And so, and um, working a day job to support all this, you understand. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Now, when um, 
given your background in direct action and and that these forms of protest and resistance, um, when what was your view on uh, or your perspective on trying to get the state or the city to offer uh, protections for folks on, on the lines of like gender discrimination, etc. You know, things were so much in their infancy and originally I don't think that most of the goals were uh, so much goals for legislation as much as more simple goals like we wanted it safe for people to walk around and not have to worry about being beaten up or being attacked or being killed I mean you know that kind of safety kinds of uh, things uh, there were we wanted uh, people to be able to especially trans people to be able to just walk around and live without being having to fear the police even though it by that time was not illegal to be on the street and to be trans uh, cops would routinely uh, arrest people on suspicion of prostitution if they were a trans woman, whether they actually were involved with prostitution or not. And uh, Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by it was illegal to be trans? Before 1969, if you were on the street dressed as the opposite gender, you were breaking the law and you could be arrested. That uh, stopped being actually enforced, particularly after Stonewall in 1969. The, in New York itself. Being right, the law, in New York City. The law itself wasn't repealed, uh, you know, actually officially repealed until like 71 or something like that. But between then and my time in the 80s, we weren't uh, breaking the law per se, but the harassment and intimidation on the part of New York's funniest was unrelenting. May I ask what what do you consider um, I mean maybe maybe you can answer this question maybe not but what do you consider um, your biggest accomplishment of that period as an activist? Or at least something you were proud of? Oh all doing? right um, that the accomplishment, such as it was, I think, was going fast forward to the uh, Sonda uh, story. Um, we sat through endless meetings with the Empire State Pride Agenda, which in retrospect were a waste of bloody time. How, how come? Because they weren't about to change their minds and... The support. Empire State Pride Agenda wasn't? or the Right. They weren't about to support trans inclusion in Sonda no matter what we said or what we did. Their minds were made up, thank you very much, and we should have been outside protesting them instead of inside having meetings and trying to talk to them. That was one way in which we became sidetracked. But the one thing that did happen at the very end of all of that nonsense was... Uh, that Matt Foreman at the time was the executive uh, director of the Empire State Pride Agenda, and he had previously uh, been 
executive director or a grand poobah or whatever the person is that uh, runs things at the Empire, at the uh, Anti-Violence uh, Coalition, which is what he was doing when I first met him, when we were both in uh, a queer nation together. And the last few days before the Sonda vote and everything was over, I said to him, Matt, you and I marched hundreds of times, and both of us wearing Queer Nation t-shirts. We're here, we're queer, we're all in this together. We're calling ourselves Queer Nation because we include the lesbians, the gays, the trans, everybody all in this together. And now that it's time to actually pass legislation, we're being excluded from the legislation. And I basically, he saw it and shamed it enough that after it was all over with and after Sonda had passed without us, he at least made a public apology and left ASPA and went to the, um, what's the one that's not the HRC, it's the other, the uh, something coalition, you know the one I mean. Not human rights campaign, it's. No, the other one. There used to be two. There was the Human Rights Campaign and there was the one I'm talking about. Gay Men's Health? No, 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 no. This was the National... I'm afraid I don't know. Oh, well, it was something coalition. You know the one I mean. Um, a woman named Vade, V-A-I-D. Oh, um, the National uh, Lesbian and Gay Task Force. The last, right. So Foreman replaced uh, Ms... Is it Vaid or Vaid? I want to or, pronounce it correctly. Urvashi Vat. Thank you. Pronounced Ravishi. Uh, Urvashi Vat. That's okay. Urvashi Vad. There you go. As uh, the executive. I, I knew the woman. I just could never pronounce her name, even when I was talking to her. It was embarrassing. Uh, sweet person. But anyway, she um, was replaced by Matt Foreman. And at that point, he apologized for publicly for his role in excluding us from Sonda, expressed his disgust with the whole process that things went down and vowed that the National Lesbian and Gay Task Force would support trans inclusion and everything. And then, of course, they practically disappeared as they were outspent by HRC by like hundreds of dollars to one or something. And you know, the HRC is just this juggernaut that rolls over everything, but. So can you. Uh, so anyway, my. From your, from your perspective. May, may I answer your question? Oh, no, the answer to your question was, I was the proudest that at least all of that work I had done when I was in Queer Nation became a chip that I could cash in with Matt Foreman. And that didn't do bloody much, but it was better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. And it at least validated all of the work and effort I put in because I, again, I feel like a myth developed in the, starting in the 1990s that the worth was without form and void and neither trans activism nor trans people exist until the miraculous, spontaneously generated appearance of the great and powerful Ricky of Wilkins and before that there was nothing and that's malarkey. A lot of us were out there having rocks thrown at us and 
working really hard at trans activism between Sylvia and Ricky Wilkins in this dark age lost period of history that's not documented because it doesn't suit the agenda from Ricky Forward and Gay Academia to slant everything a certain way that fits certain theories. And I don't even have a bloody theory. I'm just saying, if not me, other people, whether it be drag queens like Misunderstood or Head of Lettuce or Lady Bunny or trans people like myself or Kelly Bishop, who was in all those demonstrations with me, or Kathy Otter, who was more of a kamikaze than I'll ever be. She was right in the front of things that queers take back the night and was one of the St. Patrick's Six with the act up. And, you know, the contributions of people that were in, in queer nation, you know, trans people that were in queer nation and the other organizations of the time, that shouldn't be overshadowed and lost to history because it was when we were still primarily doing street activism and before it all became about lobbying and legislative action. Can um, I think we won the street actions and lost at the legislative level anyway. That was... So just to make it plain for folks who may not be as versed in this uh, in this uh, period, in your perspective, in not including trans uh, trans needs basically in their political work, what was the Empire State Pride agenda hoping to gain, and other um, uh, LGBT organizations that followed suit with that? I think you have to start with two things. One is the HRC. The Human Rights Campaign. The HRC was founded by a group of very wealthy gay men from the state of Texas. Uh, there's credible reason to believe some of them were part of the same circle of ultra-conservative um, gay men who... Um, were part of the same social group as people like Clay Shaw, who was the uh, gay man who was uh, named by Jim Garrison as one of the conspirators in the Kennedy assassination. He's in the movie JFK, as is uh, the character by the last name of Fury, who was played by Joe Pesci in that movie. Though that same group of radically anti-communist, radically conservative gay men who incidentally were tied to some of the same circles as that famous homosexual J. Edgar Hoover and his gunsel Clyde Tolson, that was the group of people that uh, the same circle out of which the HRC emerged. A good example would be Frank Kameny of the Mattachine Society. And uh, his whole problem was that he had been a literal CIA spook who had been fired for being gay. So he was like, no, we can be just as conservative and right wing and all American as everyone else. And the last thing in the world they wanted was any association 
with gender variants or anything that would play into what they perceived as a negative stereotype of gay people. Um, and then that goes all the way up to by the time you get to the 1990s, everything is controlled by the HRC, the Human Rights Campaign, before you say it again, and um, an extremely transphobic gay senator named Massachusetts, from Massachusetts named Barney Frank. Uh, whatever else Barney Frank is or isn't, the man just plain has a hate on towards trans people. Like, he's convinced that somehow we're a threat to everything that's gay and good in the world. Why? I don't know. Obama moved things forward, by the way. All through the 90s, Hillary was flat out saying she wouldn't listen to trans anything because she wouldn't listen to anybody or do anything except whatever Barney Frank said, mainly because of Frank's ties to Ted Kennedy. And Kennedy, for that matter, was the one that ensured that nothing trans would be included in the Americans for Disability Act, for example. He was always anti-trans. Kennedy, I mean. And... Ted Kennedy. Yes. Well, he was the only... Just a... Yes. Uh, I know that. Ted Kennedy. Just for the record. To further complicate matters, uh, you can't make this up. Xavier Hollander, the uh, woman who wrote the book The Happy Hooker, has indicated that part of Ted Kennedy's anti-trans attitude comes from his own interest in uh, forced cross-dressing with dominatrixes. That's what she says. I don't take responsibility for it. But Xavier Hollander has gone on record as having indicated that, just to keep things more interesting. You can't even, I don't have the imagination to make this stuff up. I'm a science fiction writer. I'm, I'm not that... But... So, you know, that's what we've been up against. And honestly, I think that until Obama, uh, we got... We had more... Six, we had more success with street activism and uh, at the legislative level it's been a very grim uh, picture and still is. I, I honestly think that social change comes about first when you actually change society and the laws change after the fact when the laws have to be modernized to fit the changes that have already taken place at the cultural level. You don't change the legislation first and then society follows. The only way to succeed is to do it the hard way, which is the other way about. Make the social change first, and then the legislative change will come to codify that rather than relying on using legislati legislation to change society. It's completely backwards from what actually happens. Now I'm going to do a little pause on that and just get a sense of while while uh, Chelsea was uh, doing all this activism and this kind of, you know, and doing uh, classes in pagan spiritualism and this sort of thing in the 80s, what, can you tell me a little bit about um, how you were living in the 80s? I know it was different because obviously you have a different life. But in, in, At that time in the 80s, throughout the 80s, I was a professor at Hofstra University teaching international business and marketing and Latin American studies and things like that. 
And uh, I had um, three children. My one daughter li was living, my oldest daughter was living in Texas uh, with her mother, but I had uh, two younger children who were living a uh, similar time with me in, uh, in the 1980s with my family in uh, on Long Island in uh, North Belmore, or North, North Merrick, rather. But, um, you know, so that was a time of quiescence and change going on there. So I uh, didn't start to, like, really, I saw that marriage sort of was breaking up there around the 90s, and I, I was going th starting to do change, you know, uh, on a gender basis. And so it pretty much started at that point for me. But, uh, you know, it's, but the thing is, you, in my case, where I was a professional person in the public eye, giving speeches for the university and everything like that, I, uh, you know, I didn't want to have a disaster, you know, where I was on the front page of a paper or anything like that. So it was a little, you know, tricklish, ticklish to kind of like slide through. But when I did come out at the university, they were totally supportive. They said, okay, you must have been suffering terribly. What, what can we do to help you? You know, we really are all for you. So I just like, showed up one day dressed as a woman and that was it um how how did you feel when that happened and and also what were your expectations when you showed up that day well it's pretty scary i mean uh it wasn't the first time i was out you know dressed i'd been out on the street a lot uh you know in other places but not at the university so going from the parking lot walking across the campus to my office it was like I'm thinking, holy shit, is this hard? You know, it's like, and I don't know if anybody ever noticed me along the way because there were a lot of students didn't know who I was, whatever, you know, but anyway, I got to my office and then I had to go and meet classes and the classes probably were coached probably by my colleagues that this was gonna happen. So they were like all on good behavior and I was a pretty popular professor. So we just went, you know, went along and everybody started, to, the students started to call me she before anybody else did. And um, so it went along. Wow. How, so at the time, what, um, just, to, just for clarity, what policies or protections or, you know, if, if it hadn't, if Hofstra hadn't been um, supportive of you and the student body hadn't been supportive, what would have been your recourse as a trans well, professor? Has a very, had a pretty forward-looking policy toward uh, gender. I mean, not they weren't expecting to have a, you know, cross-gender professor, but they were, you know, for women, especially the women at Hofstra are very active and they, and they put in a lot of uh, stuff that protected women's rights, you know. And, when I wrote to my department chairman saying that I was coming out as a woman in the fall and uh, that I would be teaching as a woman, you know, presenting myself as a woman from then on, I said, and of course Hofstra is, uh, we're lucky at Hofstra because there's so much legislation that we have in the, in the rules and regulations of the university that relate to not being gender discriminatory. I just threw that in there to be snarky, but uh, you know, I mean, just to say, like, there is a there is some stuff here that could support me, but I didn't really. But but it was really like the everybody was right down the line. The the provost, the deans, the department chairman, my colleagues, the students. It was like easy, really. I mean, it That's was awesome. it was not that easy, but I, I mean, in yeah, a sense, I had to have the guts to do it. But it was right. like 
you know, nobody was demonstrating against me or anything like that. I don't even know what the students said. If they might have, I think that was pretty, I was a pretty popular professor and I think the students were on my side. And there, and there are also students who are, you know, young people are like with it more so. The younger they get, the more they're with it. That was in the 90s, but still. And while all this activism is happening in New York, um, can you tell me a little bit about, maybe you have a sense, maybe you don't, don't have a sense, but at Hofstra, what was, was there activism around issues like, you know, HIV and um, uh, LGBT-related, like, rights or demands, rather? Well, I mean, uh, there was activism. Hofstra generally is not a hugely activist university because a lot of the people commute from New York City or from Long Island. Okay. But also, that, but they're pretty cool. I mean, the students are, you know, very good, and there's there is a core of uh, people that are more that are progressive there, and uh, you know, people are busy though. The students are busy because they're all working, trying to pay the bills, et cetera. But uh, you know. It, I think that uh, it's a good place in terms of the protection of the rights of students and faculty in terms of the way the legislation is because Hofstra's not while it's a university it is a relatively it's a mid-range university and they have a good feeling among the people there many people went to schools in the New York area and they've known each other and and um, they want to be they're good you know it's hard if you go to a New York school for your PhD, it's hard to get a job in New York City. So Hofstra's an ideal place where you can you know, get a job. So a lot of people cherish being there. And it's, it's I'd say, a pretty progressive university. Maybe. Part of the time there was a, uh, well, I mean, part of the time I was taking classes at Hofstra in the uh, 90s when I was with Rusty. And at that time there was a, I think they called it lesbian and gay student union or something. There is, yeah. And um, I uh, joined it, and at the time, it more than anything else functioned as an Anne Rice fan club, which was perfectly fine. It's just that. So you became president. No. <laughs> more of a mascot, I think. <laughs> I wasn't the only one wearing a top hat, a cape, and fangs. Uh, there were several of the. Uh, lesbian and gay students doing the same. Uh, I think the third book had just come out and uh, you know, or perhaps you don't, how uh, queer people used to be about Anne Rice. I mean, I feel like exposure to Anne Rice as a, you know, young person is conjured, if I may use that word, um, some sort of like queer feeling proto-queer feeling in me, I would really? say. Yeah, not not her as a person, but like mm -hmm. the world that she created. Right, that's all about, and that's all, all because of her uh, gay son and how she went uh, uber protective and uber supportive and all that, which is a good thing, mind <laughs> you. Uh, a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, we were in uh, New Orleans uh, for one of the uh, Anne Rice uh, Vampire Balls. Uh, Voltaire and Jill Tracy were the uh, music, and Nathaniel Johnstone were the uh, musical acts. These are all friends of ours that have been on our sh on my on our radio show, and we got to see Anne herself carried out on this like throne. 
and even Voltaire. I don't know. You familiar with Voltaire? Um, a little bit, not totally, not as familiar as you are. But you know who Voltaire is, yes. the... <laughs> Quite a charismatic guy. I think if Goths have a king, it's Voltaire, but... You know, one of the funniest human beings on the planet, also one of the sweetest people you'll ever meet. Uh, but anyway, even Voltaire was a little intimidated when Anne Rice is, like, carried out on this... Literally on his throne, and... He's supposed to talk to her and uh, sing to her and stuff. And he was like, he said that was the first time even he felt a little above his pay grade. And he's Voltaire, you know? <laughs> he was like starstruck, I guess, a little. A little, yeah. Maybe that's an understatement. I don't know. Wow. Um, so can I ask, where, where, um, where did you grow up, actually? Oh, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania in a uh, small uh, steel town called Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. It's about 20 miles north of Pittsburgh. The Ohio River goes up north for a while and then it goes south. It was along the Ohio River. And uh, my family, my grandfather and my great uncle sort of migrated there around the 1900s, 1910, stuff like From where? that. From uh, central Ohio. Uh, New Concord, Ohio. There's a school there called Muskingum College, which is deeply embedded in the history of my family. But anyway, um, so that was there. My father was an automobile dealer uh, from the, in the 1930s, and uh, but he was had a bad heart condition all his life, and he died when I was when he was in 1951, when I was about nine, I guess. So I stayed there, living with my sister, who's two years older than me, and my mother, and. Um, I went last two years of uh, high school. I went to a private school in Maryland. I'm not sure exactly why they packed me off to a private school because I was a pretty good student. But anyway, <laughs> I went there, and uh, then I went. To, I got a really good scholarship to Northwestern University in Chicago. It paid all my expenses and everything. So uh, I went to Northwestern for four years. Met uh, my first wife there. Got married senior year. Can you tell me a little bit about um, what what ideas about um, gender, I guess, were you exposed to in the Rust Belt in the 50s as a youth growing up? Or what were some of the ideas that, or messages that you, you got in that environment? I think it's a pretty traditional, a traditionalist type of uh, background, you know, in the 1940s and 50s in Western Pennsylvania. I think um, because my father was dead and my mother was the head of the family that I got used to a strong woman, you know, calling the shots and, and doing that sort of thing. And I was always, I've always been really down with women, you know, and being powerful figures and having the right to do anything you want to do, etc. So that was just like a carryover at that time. And I have my, my sister too was a strong is a strong woman too, so that was kind of the situation, and uh, I think that um, it was a it's a rough town, like a steel town. You know, my family was had a small business there and was fairly prosperous, and you know, so I got along okay with people. Nobody ever beat me up or anything like that. But uh, I used to play football and everything with him, so it was fun. May, may I ask? If you're, you said your family had um, kind of deep roots at this college in New Concord, yeah. Ohio. 
What um, can you tell me a little bit about that and what brought them to Western Pennsylvania? Well, um, in my in my family, there's like a strong strain of Presbyterianism or United Presbyterianism, like church related stuff, and they were oriented like toward Scottish Presbyterians. Yeah, they're sort of. I mean, Scotch Irish the way they Scotch describe Irish. themselves. Yeah, but uh, so they. Uh, you know, so they were uh, living in this small town in New Concord, and they really loved the place, you know, basically. I mean, all of my family, up to my father's brother, they used to go out there all the time, even though they didn't live there. You know, when I, when I was growing up and even away from home, there was this focus back on New Concord, Ohio, and um, how wonderful it was there in the rural area of uh, Ohio. Were they farmers then? Well, they had been farmers, but and then they uh, went to, um, they moved into town. I think they they lost their farm or something at some point. But my uncle, my great uncle Paul, was like a super businessman, and he he moved to the Pittsburgh area. Pittsburgh at that time, like in 1910, 20, was like a hot city. That was like the steel industry was new and things were growing, and the industry is still very powerful in Pittsburgh. So my uncle made a lot of money and uh, brought the whole family out there to, to live in that area. And may I just um, follow up a little bit with you, Chelsea? And you said you grew up mainly in New Jersey. Um, Not something one would care to admit, but yeah. <laughs> can you um, tell me a little bit about, about your town in New Jersey and what, what growing up was like for you there? Okay, it, uh, even though it was the 1960s and 70s, it was culturally very much like the 50s. And uh, everything was very conservative, very homophobic, very... You don't think of New Jersey as being redneck, but where I grew up, it's very, very redneck, very conservative and very, uh, kind of narrow, I guess. Extremely, yes. It's like, since you said you know who Voltaire is, uh, picture any of the, uh, uh, any Voltaire song about New Jersey picked in, uh, picked at random, and it was the same for me only 10 years earlier. That's a good, that's a very exacting uh, reference. May I ask what uh, what your parents did? Um, my father designed flexible packaging for a company that was originally called Regal Paper and later became Wrexham. Uh, my mother was your basic 50s house, 50s type housewife. And my grandparents were also very much presences in my life. Um, my grandfather was a welder. My grandmother was a substitute school teacher. And did they grow, did your grandparents grow up in Jersey as well? Uh, yeah, the, well, my mother's side of the family had roots to that part of New Jersey going back to the 1800s at least. And so um, when you got to when you got to um, high school, were you still in New Jersey at that point? Yes. 
originally I was in all the um, uh, special uh, brainy kid classes, the uh, ones where you got, you know, all the college prep uh, classes and you were set a little bit apart and treated like you were special by the uh, teachers and the other kids beat on you, you know the drill. And so, and then you came to, just to um, clarify, you came to New York then after high school and you're like, you're... After you're high school, after some college, after a lot of things. Okay. So, um, you know, we've covered a lot of different things, <laughs> obviously. Um, I just want to ask you... Um, when you asked Rusty, by the way, and the same is true for me about any awareness of trans anything... Mm -hmm. Uh, the importance of uh, Christine Jorgensen as being the only trans person that was a public figure that you would have heard of or seen on TV or been aware of can't be stressed enough just how important a figure and a symbol she was when there was nobody else whose name you knew. How, how old were you when you came across the name of Christine Jorgensen? Do you recall at all? Oh, or? six, seven, something like that. Oh, wow. And I was attracted to the idea then. I, rem I was uh, 11. I remember it distinctly where I was and who said it oh, about wow. talking about her having a sex change. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that moment? Well, I mean, it, share was that like, story? it was just like, wow. I mean, I was just flabbergasted. I didn't know that could happen, but I'm thinking, wow, Christine Jorgensen and had this operation and now she's a woman. And, you know, I didn't think, wow, I want to get that. You know, I was just like, this is, it was, I was just intrigued by it, really. That's all. And, and focused on it. And I still remember it, as I said. So something, I feel like something in me was like responding to that, which I wasn't even aware of at all. And the same with you, except at a, at a younger age, at age six, you were yeah. responding. Yeah. And I found the idea very appealing somehow. So, so when it comes to your own gender, did you, you, f you felt an affinity for or a connection with um, femininity and womanhood from an early age? Yes. Or is that a way? No, that's fair. I don't want to mischaracterize Okay, that's it. fair. You see... Or how would you say it in your words? I shouldn't, I shouldn't be offering to you. Go right ahead. No, it's, that's fair. I think that there's a mixture of things, I think. Um, gender is very complicated and very fraught, I think. Um, put it this way in many ways I consider myself a feminist and yet for all the uh, talk about all of the various uh, male privileges uh, let's not forget that I grew up while the Vietnam War was going on and one of the privileges which came with being male was the uh, privilege of choosing whether you were going to go to Vietnam, Canada, or jail, a privilege that I would happily forgo, and I'm sure many others would as well. It wasn't all like... The other thing I think that feminist theory frankly misses is this assumption that male privilege is something that everyone who is born male automatically gets male privilege and it's no um, 
male privilege is something that comes in a whole competitive, complicated packing order. Uh, it involves success at sports. It involves uh, prowess at fisticuffs. It involves any number of little tests and little challenges. Um, manhood always held up as something that one earns rather than something that is just presented to one at birth. And some of those tests I succeeded at, some of those tests I failed miserably at, and some of them I simply didn't even participate in the effort because by the time I reached the ages where those particular challenges were uh, presented, I had already pretty much opted out of the entire game. I hope that makes some sense. No, it definitely does. And it actually, what you just said, you know, about that and about Christine uh, Jorgensen tied into what I was going to ask, which is that, you know, um, it's become something of a truism that we're living in this era of such like trans visibility and how important that is. And, you know, this it sort of thing. It seemed that way for a while. And then Trump assumed power and now we're all have to recalibrate and say what exactly is going on and where exactly are we living i am not as political as a lot of other people in terms of being primarily concerned with electoral politics and which candidate gets elected it does matter to me that obama was the first american president to actually use the word transgender, to actually say I'm a human being. And he was replaced by Trump coming along and saying, no, you're not. So where are we? I don't know. What What do you, I, I guess my final question for both of you is like, what do you hope for for um, trans people in the future? What do you wish for, given your life experience as activist, as, you know, um, people who had to like really struggle through lots of different things, accessing community and all this other, what do you wish for, for trans folks? Is it my place to wish for anything to represent all trans folks because I happen to be trans? I would wish that we would all have the same rights, the same opportunities the, as anybody else of course, that we all be on an equal playing field, that we not be victims of murder and violence and assault and that sort of thing. At this point, I'm rather uh, selfishly uh, uh, concerned. What I wish for myself is the next part in a television show or a movie or uh, the next opportunity to perform on stage at a Jeff Mack event or a Macabre Fair event or something of that nature. To have the next book I write be the one that gets picked up a little by more people in the science fiction and horror fiction uh, world so that I have a better chance of being picked up by a major publisher or at least 
one of the small press that sells more copies uh, than I'm selling now, that sort of thing, very minor personal goals. What uh, what would you what, what do you think about this uh, question? Or well, I would hope would that I, I would hope that nobody is discriminated against anywhere because of gender, and that everybody feel free to live the life that they that they want to live. If you know, especially from the standpoint of gender, but in general, I I just hope that people have that that right to do it, and um, I think that we're moving in that direction uh, so far. I think that uh, under the, in the Obama administration, definitely we made a lot of progress in that. I, I actually don't feel that Trump in his heart is an anti-trans person, but I think that he could do, make some you know, problems uh, for us. But I think that ultimately it's going to work out uh, that there'll be more and more acceptance for gender variance and that anybody can be whatever they are in terms of gender. That's where we should be going. Probably if there's one thing I wish for the trans community at this point is that we can all pee without fear of being arrested. Seems a very humble thing to want. I mean that also that that um, hostility and aggression regarding you know, bathrooms is something that has been going on now for decades, and I think a lot of people don't aren't aware of how that trope keeps getting. Well, if you remember, or perhaps you don't, in the civil rights era, originally bathrooms were segregated by race. This is nothing new. Um, also, you have to remember the extreme uh, virulence of the way that a particular malevolent strain of Christian fundamentalism has been allowed to metastasize in this country. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Florida, so... So you understand. I, I may be a little familiar. Anyway... Um, is there anything else that you would like to add or, or felt that like I yes. completely missed? Yeah. In Goth We Trust airs every Wednesday and Thursday night from 10 o'clock to midnight on WIOX 91.3 FM in Roxbury, New York and streaming on the web at WIOXradio.org I hope that People, especially people who are fans of goth music, will listen. Thank you very much, Rusty. Is there anything else that you would want to add? No, I think this has been a very interesting conversation, and I hope that uh, people enjoy it. If anybody listens to it in the future, when it's embedded in a giant library someplace set into the wall, I can just vision this movie where there's you know, millions of uh, stories told like this waiting to be accessed. Well, th thank you very much. It's been a privilege to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Mm -hmm.